Hi, everyone. FYI, this episode of Silvacast is being recorded virtually. It is a pandemic after all. So please excuse any funky audio issues. You know what I mean. Welcome to Silvacast, everybody, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. So, Brad, how was the weekend? No, it was, it was good. It's turkey season, so you know me. It's uh, turkey 24-7, Did or at least, one? you know, while legal. I, I did get a turkey, Ooh, so nice. smoked turkey breast is back on the menu. How was your weekend? Well, let me tell you. Uh, you know, we have this <laughs> new puppy, Watson. Uh, which which you're going to rename Edgar, right? Uh, no. Because Edgar no, Edge, I know that would be... your preferred name, but no. Eddie, Eddie come here, Eddie. <laughs> uh, all right. No, it's going with Watson. All right. Uh, he's a Brittany. He's six months old, and he's just full of, full of it. So this weekend, he dug holes in the yard. Uh, he chewed up our socks. Uh, he nearly ate a dead mummified squirrel. Uh, and then he decided that counter surfing was much more rewarding than any of the treats we could lure him with. And so all of this was after multiple long walks uh, every day. So you, that's you how were, it's going. You were really polite with the full of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think we know what that it is. And, you know, because, you know, I've had pups too. And, and you know, it, it's it's kind of the, like, you just have to, you know, it's more of that serenity now, or this too shall pass. <laughs> so you just have to wait for it, Greg. It's, it's uh, time will come. It'll, as soon it'll, it'll, he'll be an old dog. Uh, well, I have been shouting serenity now, because um, it is a test of my patience. And anyway, it's had me thinking about patience a lot lately, and specifically, my lack of it. Yeah. And, you know, and this is kind of, maybe getting back to like our talking about the silviculture stuff, but you know, you and I, and I guess we talk about the importance of just being able to wait for things in, in forestry, you know, patience in silviculture. Mm -hmm. And we're so often in results or we're so often in a hurry to see results that we, that we kind of forget that, you know, like natural systems don't necessarily work on our time scales, And so that, that can really be a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of why I bring this up, because I have the feeling that today's topic, it's going to require both some thoughtful silviculture, but then also that patience uh, to wait and see what happens. And today's topic is? Well, Brad, if you read the answer to last month's trivia question, it will be a clue. Oh, that's right. Right. Did you did you uh, listen to trivia? Uh listen to like the, oh this like, like trivia contest yeah, no i like didn't the trivia contest no 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 uwsp no well I, I did it was it was fun just old home days so <laughs> i'll do this in my best i'll do this in my best uh uh thing for it so uh so here it is uh, in honor of uwsp's trivia contest for 10 trivia points we asked what former college of natural resources professor was deemed most likely to be at home among and on the hardwoods and you know what? I, so that was my best way of saying it because they always have a certain way of saying it. But we, we forgot, right? We didn't say what university this person was a professor at. Did Okay, so, and Haley, did we get any right answers? 
Yeah. Yeah, I okay. didn't think so. Well, all right. Given the fact, Brad, that we botched the question, uh, that's probably not surprising. We didn't get an answer. So, do you know the answer? Our our, our answer for this question would have or is, and I guess we would have accepted. Robert Engelhart, Professor Emeritus of Forestry at the Uni University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point for 25 years and public address announcer for the UWSB Pointers men's basketball team. He was among and on the hardwoods. <laughs> well, congratulations, Brad. You have just won this month's trivia prize. Uh, of course, you wrote the question, so I hardly think that's fair. Uh, but just also for the record, uh, Professor Engelhard was my undergrad advisor. Oh, well, it, it, you know, it's, it's interesting. At least this gave us a lead in for our topic today, right? And that is Northern hardwood silviculture. And I know we recently spoke with Ralph Nyland about uneven age systems in Northern hardwoods, but today we're going to look at or explore another aspect, and that's specifically natural regeneration in Northern hardwoods. So joining us today on Silvacast will be Mike Walters, Professor of Forest Ecology at Michigan State University and Principal Investigator on what has been dubbed the Big Northern Hardwood Study. Well, I'm really looking forward to that conversation with Mike. Uh, but first, this whole thing gives us a chance to plug the upcoming Northern Hardwood Conference, which, uh, and I know you know this, Brad, but the audience doesn't. It's going to be a virtual event, and it's scheduled coming up here for June 15th and 16th. Uh, Mike and his crew will be there talking about the Big Northern Hardwood Study, but there'll be lots of other presenters. And so I want to encourage folks, if you're interested in Northern Hardwoods, uh, this will be a great opportunity. And if you want to know how to register, uh, there will be a link to the conference website uh, that Haley will put in the show notes. Oh. And by the way, registration closes on June 8th. So there's that plug. So with that, a word from our sponsor. So today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by, drum roll please, Arbogast Q-Factor Industries, makers of the original Jitter Q and Hula Q, guaranteed to catch fewer fish next time. Yeah, but they keep getting bigger. <laughs> But you really got to have some specialty knowledge, maybe, to to figure out that sponsor. Uh, fishermen, foresters, it all starts with that. They'll be fine. <laughs> all right. Here we are back at Silvacast with Mike Walters. Mike, welcome. How are you doing? Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Mike, you've been involved in, in I guess, research in northern hardwoods at Michigan State for a while. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I guess what I like to say, a lot of people will ask me uh, kind of how I got to forestry or, or um, in forestry research, because it's a fairly small area, and it's, it's not something that I think a lot of people when they're young would go, I want to be a forestry researcher. But um, I guess how it started for me was that uh, I had the good fortune of bumping along in the back of a Willie's Jeep with my uncle up north of Whitefish, Montana, when I was six or seven years old, when he was a, a uh, state of Montana forester. Uh, and he'd be marking timber on Stryker Ridge, and you could see Glacier National Park from there. And, 
and all that was pretty was magic for a little for a little kid i'll tell you and it really those kind of experiences really stick with you uh but i wound up i wound up getting into bi biology uh as as a major in college and uh uh and then wind, wound up at the university of wisconsin then my advisor moved over to minnesota i was doing a forest ecology degree is very much an ecologist rather than a forester how i was trained initially and um, I worked on uh, sort of the physiological ecology of shade tolerance and sugar maple. And I was up in Vilas County, Wisconsin, and places like that doing a lot of my field work. Mm -hmm. But then I got out of school. I had the opportunity to go up to the University of Northern British Columbia for a job as a silviculturist. So I had to, I had wow. to learn fast because I was trained as a forest ecologist. So there are a lot of 2 a.m., you know, early wake-ups to, to get my lectures together and being in a new place and learning new things with a crowd that had been working in the woods for 10 years and were coming back to becoming uh, to becoming um, a certified foresters. They already knew everything. So it was very much trial by fire. It was scary a little bit. Uh, but uh, I wound up absolutely loving being able to apply ecological and other knowledge to on-the-ground Forest management became a very much a passion for me. You know, initially inspired by my experiences with my uncle, but then I kind of walked a little bit away from that in a broader way, but then came back to it. And I've been there ever since. I really like being able to work on problems that forest managers have uh, in which I can bring some in some larger, small ways, some of the things that I know to bring to bear in some of these problems. I find it very satisfying. So that's how I got here. It's interesting to me, Brad, we asked this question of other guests and how many kind of go back to their childhood of something that just got them enthralled with forests or forestry. So it's just kind of an interesting link that we all seem to have. Yeah, hopefully we have some listeners in, you know, like uh, recruitment for forestry that are kind of listening to this saying, hey, let's let's focus on that age Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I think those really early experiences can really shape someone for life. Um, yep. I hear it a lot, too. So, so Mike, now you're at uh, Michigan State University. Uh, what's your role there? Yeah, so um, it's pretty much the same as, as what enticed me to come down in, in the first place. So I moved to Michigan State University in 1998. And the job that was advertised was for a... Uh, a forestry, an applied forest ecologist uh, that would work with the DNR and the management problems. So I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan in the first place too. So there was the opportunity to go, to go back home, uh, but, uh, and to do exactly what I wanted to do, uh, like I spelled out earlier, and that is bring what I did know to, to bear upon to help be able to help forestry out and uh, make it more, uh, uh, more sustainable, address some of the problems foresters and forestry had at the time. So it was perfect. And that's what I do now. So so that was a, a, a position that was funded by the Michigan Department of Natural Resources. And it carried with it the mandate to work with them on these problems. And uh, I've been there uh, ever since. And, and one, of the, one of the cool things about the 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 whole setup was that they got me involved right away with their specialist meetings, say their silviculture team. 
Uh, and so I would be involved in annual, semi-annual meetings with them going over everything. Problems they were having with regeneration, developing the logistics for planning for the next spring, all that kind of stuff. So I kind of learned the ropes of what they had to do on a working basis. And then I had uh, 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 some, a couple folks take me un under the wing, get me out, and really look firsthand at some of the problems that they had. And they had, they had and have uh, several, you know, the, 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 the big bubble of red pine availability with nothing coming in behind it. The fillets, one, and one that was interesting to me, but, but the, and there, there's several others, but the one that really resonated with me was that there was uh, a realization among foresters back then that they were really having problems. I mean, that's nothing new that they're having problems regenerating uh, northern hardwoods and selection systems, uh, selection silvicultural systems, and that um, they thought that deer were cert certainly involved, but there might be other things going on too. And so I kind of took that on as 80% plus of my work ever since I got here, um, just about to try to build build the story, understand all the factors that are involved in uh, regeneration issues in Northern Hardwoods, and to try to develop some solutions. Mike, before we go into Northern Hardwood regeneration, I just want to say I'm a, I'm a little bit disappointed with that story because I had heard that oh, here we you go. Here we go. kick a pretty mean hacky sack. <laughs> um, and in fact... Uh, we used to be at UW-Madison together, and a favorite pastime of the forestry department was to go out and kick the hacky sack at lunch or in the stock pavilion. And I just just envisioned maybe that during all those conversations, kicking the hack, you know, you had an epiphany that you were going to go into northern hardwood management and research. But I guess, you know, maybe that didn't happen that way. You know, I, I wound up, I wound up, uh, I wound up trying at the professional circuit for hacky sack <laughs> kicking. I wound up playing for a short time in Croatia in their off season, but uh, it wasn't lucrative enough. I couldn't support a family. So I, I, I had to return to forest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You're you know, the one you, gone for it. You're you're you you're the hacky sack kicker that that truly had the skill out. There. Yeah. Yeah. We all have dreams. Yeah, uh. yeah. And, and you know this is this is satisfying every stereotype of every Stevens Pointer who's ever looked at Madison and said, "I bet they're just wearing sandals down there." We're going to class in boots, and they're wearing sandals. Just yeah. it's all right. It's all good. Didn't we, Brad? Yeah, yeah. Madison beatniks, boy. Yeah. But so, you know, like and it was really interesting looking through the papers you had, and it was kind of cool. You mentioned that close interaction with with managers, because it seemed like as I was reading back, like we read a lot of papers and we're like, oh, this is going to be cool. And then you get done with the paper you go, that's really cool. I'm not sure how I'm going to use it. And it seemed like you when you get done with your papers, you're looking at actual problems and then maybe pointing forward to potential solutions or other things that go with that, which I, I found really interesting. Well, we, we try. I, I got to say, it kind of goes back to uh, what when this wound up, you know, when my career really shifted when I went to the University of Northern British Columbia and wound up being their silviculturist, is that I really tried to absolutely prioritize uh, end users as my audience uh, after um, after that. Now, that, that's not 
uh, it's not necessarily always easy to do. Uh, and it's, it's a sort of a lifelong commitment to um, getting on the same page in terms of priorities and um, even language, <laughs> communication back and forth. Uh, it can become a challenge for publishing sometimes, too, because that's not always uh, rewarded uh, to uh, push something that has, you know, clear, straightforward application mm -hmm. uh, out there. But um, it is what I wanted to do. And it, I had the luxury of because of the arrangement of my position being supported by the Michigan Department of Natural Resources of being able to do that in, in a university setting with mm -hmm. that. So just fortunate for, for where I'm at. Mike, you already, you already mentioned this. And I know, Brad, you and I hear this all the time about these issues and concerns about inadequate regeneration in northern hardwoods, whether that's just low numbers, uh, not recruiting into the canopy or poor species diversity. And as Brad mentioned, you've done uh, a few papers on this subject. Can you just kind of elaborate on what do you see as what are some of the major problems that is causing uh, foresters to observe this? Yeah, um, there are several, and they kind of all conspire <laughs> negatively on, on regeneration. I, I think I sometimes term, uh, uh, phrase it in terms of uh, the legacies of past forest management and wildlife management have kind of uh, to some degree, got us in uh, this pickle, and 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 the problems with regeneration, I should I should say, also aren't everywhere. Right. There are certainly places, uh, and you know, I I get told that by the foresters in those places too. I'll say, we don't need your stuff up here. We're doing just <laughs> fine, and and they're right. They are. I mean, there's some places in the Lake Superior watershed where they're where they're um, yeah. mostly. Uh, uh, able to regenerate a, a mix of species uh, dominated by sugar maple, which is what they're trying to do. But um, I often uh, describe it, uh, the, 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 these problems that we have over large extents, not everywhere, but over large extents, uh, is um, uh, come from a combination uh, of factors. So the, so the legacies of forest management is that this either selection, single tree selection, or uh, or, or thinning of stands, uh, kind of depending on how they're viewed and what, what, uh, what their, their origins are, even aged or uneven aged, uh, has been practiced since uh, early 70s, mm -hmm. uh, approximately, um, and have taken on various permutations to others, like a, a timber stand improvement for a while and single tree selection, but but by and large, what, what it's, it's uh, the, the commonality amongst those practices are, are selecting individual trees dispersed to the stand, harvesting them, uh, and more or less uh, using, uh, say, an arbogast guide to try to get you at uneven uh, diameter and hopefully age structure in stands. And with the notion that you're regenerating sugar maple in the small gaps that are created by the removal of these trees and other shade tolerant species. What that's, there's several things that the period of exploitation first in forests and then management, including single tree selection have resulted in their legacies that have 
discouraged uh, the regeneration of several species, including the sugar maple. One of those uh, is that uh, instead of trees left to die in the woods and become coarse woody debris in the understory, uh, there's not much in the way of coarse wood and a modern managed forest. And we use harvest equipment now that's fairly gentle. Oftentimes we're there in the winter uh, with uh, uh, equipment that's a little more gentle than what they were using in 1910. And uh, it's left little in the way of, uh, of little in the way of mineral soil substrate results from harvesting. There's little coarse wood, and so there's not a lot of opportunity, especially for small seed species, to get started in these forests. And so you don't see a lot of them because, again, these practices have been going on for a while. Uh, so there's little in the way of yellow birch seedlings, hemlock seedlings, and things like that, lots of northern hardwood forests. So that's one thing, lack of substrate. Mm -hmm. uh, another is that, especially during the period of exploitation, but also during uh, sort of the TSI, Timber Stand Improvement Era, is that um, lots of species were pulled out of the forest. So there's local seed availability issues for several species. My, uh, the, uh, um, and I think I've seen estimated by a uh, student of Mladenov's uh, that uh, paper that goes back a ways that uh, hemlock is uh, about 85% less abundant in the overstory than it was prior to European settlement. So in lots of forest stands, it's essentially uh, locally absent. So there's seed source availability issues in lots of stands too. They've certainly been pushed over time towards uh, higher proportions of sugar maple in the overstory, less diverse overstories. Basically, so there's there's another uh, problem. Now to get to get to the couple that I think have the strongest impact on the. Uh, regeneration of a broad diversity of species in northern hardwood stands. Small single tree selection gaps have been prioritized for a while. I think you guys are probably cutting larger gaps in your forest now in Wisconsin. We are in Michigan as well. Mm -hmm. But that went on for some time. So that's going to promote only shade tolerant species. Combine that with unprecedented high deer densities erupting in the 1940s or 50s in, in your area and same around here. Uh, they've been high ever since. The combination of single tree selection and high deer populations is a particularly bad one. And so what you're left with, you have all these filtering processes. First of all, you don't get some of your small seeded species because you don't have substrate for them to get going on. So you're not even getting seedlings for those. You're certainly not getting seedlings from things for which there's no local seed sources available. So you're, you're, you're down maybe in any particular stand, another couple of species you might otherwise uh, have. Uh, then you're cutting small openings. So you're likely to recruit uh, only um, uh, shade tolerant species in those gaps up into the overstory. Uh, but you've got a lot of deer. So all you're gonna wind up with are your larger seeded Shade tolerant species that the deer don't care about. That and that kind of sums it up in, in mm -hmm. my estimation. Mm -hmm. And and you kind of had I know you had a little bit of work that came off of that. And I, it was kind of one of those things where when you read it, you go, oh, oh, well, that of course that makes sense. But hey, this is really cool because it's like you don't really think about it. And it was that idea that if you have limited seed sources, you want to put your regeneration openings near those limited seed sources. Yeah. 
And I think sometimes people just miss that. It's like, well, let's look for opportunities in the woods, but you don't really think about that because you expect that you'll just have these things occur. Yeah, but it's one of those where deliberate and thoughtful about gap placement. Exactly. Exactly. And I thought that was really good. And it's kind of, that's, I think that's huge for managers, you know, just when thinking about how to implement things. So that, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. It seems like oftentimes there's, there's this tendency to be semi kind of um, systematic with regard to layout of such things. And indeed that's what we do in our experiment just because of the space we're working in. Uh, but um, there's no reason why you can't follow the trees, like you say, with those those kinds of harvests, rather than, uh, again, I think humans love grids, kind of a quasi-agricultural layout, rather than rather than doing something that takes advantage, like, you know, I think that's a great point, Brad, taking advantage of, of what you have in the forest in terms of trying to foster. Yeah, and I think about those small gaps too, and kind of the combination with deer, as you said, is a little bit deadly because they just seem to then, uh, there's low levels of browse and they just seem to pull in the deer into those pockets. Uh, so it just kind of feeds on itself. Yeah, I've heard it described as a sort of salad bowl effect. Again, you don't yeah. you have X, X amount of deer <laughs> and you have this, you know, this systematically it's got to accommodate all the deer sitting there in the middle of the woods so it does it focuses them and plus it trees don't grow super fast in those gaps either and trees are at risk from the time that mostly they're about 25 about 10 inches tall up to breast height well if you're growing slowly yeah, you're in that zone yeah, a long yeah. time. Yeah, if you're like, a hemlock, you're there forever. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> figure maybe they're going to get lucky over the next ten years and make it through to the point. Yeah, where yeah, you yeah. You only, you only need one deer square mile if it's going to sit in that zone for fifty years. Yeah, exactly. Mike, you've done some other publishing looking at uh, that gap size, and as you said, the we have this issue with the small gaps, but also creating larger gaps doesn't always necessitate getting the right species that you want to get. Um, so, so we have sort of these assumptions going that we make a larger gap uh, will increase light and it will generate more species within it, uh, more variety of species, but we don't necessarily always see that. Mm -hmm. So is that assumption that we make bigger gaps and we get more diversity wrong or what are we seeing with the issues with that? Well, I think we're going to, uh, when we uh, get through our, our big Northern hardwoods project, we're going to see a little bit more. We've been a little disappointed in our, our gap harvest so far, I can say, whereas our shelter woods also for a little basal area look pretty good actually in general. Don't take that home. I mean, that's that's basically a researcher's observation, which 95% of the time is wrong, but uh, rather than hard data. Uh, but um, that's a complicated issue, but I'll, I'll address it. But um, what we find over almost all of our studies is that you do get an increase in the density of, say, mid-tolerance, oftentimes it's ash, but... Uh, uh, and of sugar maple as you in the sapling class as you increase uh, gap size. You do see that. But what I would say is that um, 
you're not always getting, well, it's very highly variable, despite the fact you see a positive relationship. And despite the fact that you have some increases, uh, you're not, um, they're not always densities that you need, want for management. They're too low still. And um, what we've also, say, so across our studies, most species increase their density with decreasing basal area in the overstory. We see that. We've seen that from Megan Matonis' work in 2011, all the way through a paper I'm working on right now on stocking where I put species in groups. That, that shows up. Uh, but what we, we had this controlled experiment in Emmett County, Michigan, right there, and uh, where we fenced, didn't fence gaps, uh, and the gaps went from single tree single tree removals up to close to an acre in size. And uh, what we found was that we were not recruiting high numbers of the more tolerant species that would have been sitting in the understory as advanced regeneration, and including some of the mid-tolerant species like red oak is the same thing. Species that have slow juvenile growth rates and wind up depending on being there as advanced regeneration to then take advantage of when a gap forms. Those species, I would suggest, are almost obligate advanced regeneration species because of their strategy. So again, they sit there uh, for uh, multiple years and then hopefully take advantage of, of, uh, of an opening. But it really requires that they're there already because then they can bolt, then they can go and reach like bolt and grow fast, reach the overstory, right? When the opening, opening happens. If instead they're just there as small seedlings, the jungle of rubus, of blackberry, and all sorts of crud like that comes in there and creates a pretty shady environment for the small seedlings. In short order, most of them die. But the the wild card here, and what kind of precludes those species, I think, and this is again, this is based on my controlled experiment, you know, a field experiment in northern Michigan, a couple sites, it's about it. Uh, so it's not, I wouldn't say this has been done across the resource, and that's what we're trying to do now, is that the deer are eliminating that larger advanced regeneration. Um, knee high, a little less than knee high that you see in a lot of stands where sugar maple is doing well. See up near the Lake, Lake Superior uh, uh, watershed in, in the UP. Uh, and uh, the deer eliminate, so it's not there to take advantage of the gaps when they form. So, what does take advantage of the large gaps when they form are things that can establish well, two things things deer don't eat and of seedlings of fast growing species that establish right after the gaps form, they're able to grow in that tangled crud of rubus and other stuff that the deer like walking through about as much as we do, not very much. And uh, so we're finding things like paper birch, aspen, uh, some yellow, now these are planted and naturals in these gaps, uh, yellow birch, Yellow birch, paper birch, aspen, things like that will get started in those larger gaps, half acre and larger, because they're able to keep up with the shrubs. 
But there wasn't much in the way of advanced regeneration of things like sugar maple and oak and other kind of slow growing species as juveniles that rely on doing that some way or another uh, that wound up being successful in those gaps. Some, some sprouts, some things that got ran over and sprouted during the logging operations wound up punching through that. But not much in terms of, uh, there just wasn't much advanced regeneration, uh, again, because I think it's eliminated by deer uh, to take advantage of that new change in resources. Brad, it sounds like a similar discussion we had around oak management in terms of uh, the importance of developing that advanced regeneration. So what I hear you saying, Mike, is you know, light is important, but it's not the only factor. So, so if you make these large gaps and you don't have that well-established advanced regeneration, then you're really at a competitive disadvantage for a lot of your regeneration. For some of those species and for sugar maple, yes. Yeah. And, and I suppose then the, the trick is getting that combination of, because in a lot of these situations that, that, and I've heard that called like the, instead of a seed bank, the seedling bank, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the trick is to get a diverse seedling bank or to get species established with that seedling bank. As So if you're looking for diversity in the long run, so that in a way that kind of leads to mapleization if you don't take, a, take into consideration that you want to get these other species in by doing other practices too. Yeah, yep. Yeah, no, that sounds really familiar. In fact, Greg, I was going to say, we've seen that in a lot of places. A couple of years ago, we had, I think it was 2014, we had a seedling, uh, a seedling crop across the, like from, from Milwaukee to Bayfield, every woods you went into was full of sugar maple seedlings. And what was really instructive is that the woods were full of seedlings, the, the gaps that we had created weren't, because there was already something there taking their place. Yeah. yeah. We've seen the same in our post-harvest surveys of our northern hardwoods, Brad. Yeah. Same pattern. So I'm, I'm just curious, Mike, has, have, um, like we, you talked about some factors, and this is just a, a curiosity on my part, have we hear a lot and are starting to hear more about uh, worms being an issue? Have you guys, has, has that come up at all in some of the, the stuff that you guys have looked at? Um, yes, yes, but no. <laughs> yes. So um, we have a wildlife student and professor, uh, Gary Roloff, highly involved in this, this project. Uh, I am, he and I are partners. Uh, he comes from the wildlife end. And a student of his went and surveyed several of our stands for earthworms, ones that I thought probably wouldn't have had earthworms, actually. They were kind of remote places in the eastern UP and things like that. And they did. The way we've, uh, so we probably have earthworms all over the place, uh, but we're not, um, and I get asked this a lot. I never answer it very well. Uh, but yeah, I think where we've come to with that is that something that we're not really going to be able to do anything about. Right. So we just kind of go, it's just part of the background noise of what's going on in these stands. And we have to find things that work regardless of whether there's earthworms on site or not. We're not going to control the earthworms. So would it be useful to know effects and things like that? Sure. But in terms of uh, kind of cutting to the quick on this and trying to find some things that work for northern hardwoods across the resource and having only uh, a limited amount of resources to approach this work we let it we let it, we kind of let it fall off the table Brad yep 
Oh, I did want to say, and coming back to the legacies of past management again, I, I know that you guys deal with this to some degree because we had a meeting of uh, me like this. Uh, I think you were on it, Brad and Greg as well, with uh, regard to ironwood and the problems that you have with high ironwood densities in some sites. Uh, I, you know, I would argue that, again, that is this completely the legacy of partial harvesting in these northern hardwood stands over the past several decades. Beech, and we really have beech too, beech and ironwood, the combination uh, or those two species are those somewhat larger, you know, they can germinate in the forest floor with leaf litter and that. The deer don't eat them and they're shade tolerant. And so in some areas, our regeneration layers are dominated by beech and ironwood and say that one to two inch class size saplings. And um, we have areas, particularly in Eastern Upper Peninsula and especially the lower tier of uh, Northern hardwood type stands in the DNR resources right across mid-Michigan right here, where um, like 2000 stems plus per acre of the combination of beech and ironwood in those stands. That represents a, um, a competition issue for anything that you'd wanna, uh, right. want to establish. And right. so there is, it hasn't happened yet because it's expensive to do, but there's a definite discussion within the DNR about uh, going into those sites and paying, paying the price to control and decrease uh, stem densities of those species. Yeah. Because of the realization they're not going to be able to regenerate anything else if they don't do something about it. Yeah. So, and you kind of alluded to it, you've, you've taken a lot of this past research and brought that forward to the, the big Northern Hardwood study. And so you're kind of, this is kind of saying, all right, well, let's take a look at this on, on a grander scale. Could you talk a little bit about that, what, this, what the study is and what it's looking at? Yeah, um, kind of outlined that. So, so we, there's this realization that, um, that uh, lots of the selection uh, managed northern hardwood stands uh, are not well stocked with regeneration size class individuals, seedlings and larger seedlings and saplings of species desirable to management. Neither there's um, not much there at all in some stands, or uh, lots of beach and iron beach and or ironwood. And um, yeah, we brought these others studies forward kind of connected the dots and yeah you've got some substrate issues going on you certainly have deer issues um there are there's some promise in larger harvest openings uh, reducing base layer in the overstory however that is that, you know in whatever system you wind up using but um but uh it's, it's essentially using more uh intense harvest that than are used for uh single tree selection all of those things might, might be useful. Uh, but there's also the realization that the effects of these, what winds up being useful or necessary to do to foster valuable uh, hardwood regeneration and a mix of other species uh, will likely vary across the resource. It'll vary because deer vary across the resource. Uh, we've already seen, and that's a very clear pattern in across from north to south in the Upper Peninsula, regard to deer density and where trees grow well and, and where they where they don't. Uh, but also, uh, we fully expected things to change with uh, site quality 
we use uh, John Kotar's uh, habitat classification as a proxy for uh, site quality. And um, uh, simply because you have different players, different species mixes on different sites, uh, different degrees of competition uh, uh, following harvest, and we expected all these things to to affect the outcome of any kind of silviculture we might use on these sites. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. then we, we wound up, uh, and then we, we looked at it and go, okay, what might be useful? Larger harvest openings. We might have to control that advanced regeneration of beech and ironwood and um, other competing species like the rubus, the rubus layer. We might have to consider being a little rougher on the, on the forest floor to try to generate some mineral soil for substrate uh, as a substrate for seedling establishment. So we wound up taking all that in and in these studies leading to this and all those sort of multiple limiting factors or filters that affect what you finally get between seed and sapling, um, all the things that affect those transitions. And we uh, design experiment where we have a uh, uh, hundred and 144 sites became 141 because we there was three that we wound up not being able to do. 141 sites, each of them are 30 acres in size. We wanted all of them to be operational forest stands, not small experimental plots, and have them distributed through the state. Those 141 stands go from the tip of the we have like a couple of them on the very tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula, and they go all the way down to near Cadillac, which is right. Oh, well, over there, right there. So they go yeah, throughout the throughout the northern hardwood DNR-owned resource in Michigan. Most of the sites are on state land, but we also have uh, 26 sites, I think, that are on industry land as well. And that's uh, TRG and um, Hancock are a couple of industrial partners of, of ours. They kind of feel in between the state sites that we have. Just that scale, Mike, impresses me so much because, you know, Brad and I have worked with others to set up research projects and just trying to get 40 acres sometimes is a tough sell. Um, but that that's really impressive. Yeah, well, the uh, so just a little bit of the back, and I'm glad you brought that up too, Greg, a little bit of the uh, background on how this got going. So that the... the uh, the DNR has been concerned about this for some time, and yeah, you know, there's some concern about continued certification, you know, in their inability to be able to regenerate hardwood hardwoods on some sites. And um, so they actually approached Gary and I about doing this project. There was they they pushed the scope of this. I didn't have to sell it too hard. And uh, I got to say, I've had a tremendous partner in Jason Hartman at the DNR. Mm -hmm. He's yep, so yeah, awesome. we know Jason. Yep. Very aggressive about let's even get impatient. Yeah, let's move this thing forward. You know, let's let's figure this out. And that's that's great to have that to have someone like that to work with. Uh, so okay, so we uh, uh, they really pushed that. So they wound up approaching Gary Roloff and I. And what was really unusual about that partnership is that that is a partnership from the get-go between wildlife and forestry. And as I'm sure you know, that relationship between those two, and because of the deer issue, isn't always lovey-dovey. Yeah. And and yet um, they said, and, and and we approached it from this standpoint. 
okay, now you've told us from the last several decades as the wildlife we're talking that we need to decrease deer densities, but really people want the deer out there. They want to see deer and they want to be able to hunt deer. And it's probably politically infeasible to, to see that happen. So let's all figure out a way to manage northern hardwoods, use the silver culture that we need in the, in, with the understanding that there's going to be some deer out there and show us and, and, and sort of the, the notion or idea that there might be, uh, you might have to use more intensive silviculture or uh, more um, uh, uh, silviculture that hasn't been used much before in northern hardwoods to get that done in some areas where there's some higher deer populations. And maybe some areas where it doesn't work at all. And then you have that conversation about what do you do with the high deer densities, do you manage for something else, all that sort of stuff. But understanding how that works across the resources is important to figure out. So what did the treatments look like in these? Yeah. So, okay. So we have these 141 sites across the state. And then we distributed uh, four different overstory treatments and then two different understory treatments. One treatment, one understory treatment, and one overstory treatment on each site. So applied to 30 acres. So, uh, and the overstory treatments are our first business as usual, and that would be single tree selection with some small gaps, you know, like 0.17 acre gap, something like fairly small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so, because we wanted to compare these newer or under- not often used approaches for managing northern hardwoods, at least in this part of the world, uh, to what what's been what's been being done, what's being done now. So a quarter of the sites have single tree selection and uh, a small group selection gaps in them. Uh, another treatment is uh, large, medium to large group to patch cuts dispersed, in, in which about forty percent of the 30 acres is taken out in discrete gaps of various sizes. Uh, then we have a shelter wood system in which we reduced basal area to, um, well, what we were shooting for was uh, 50% overstory cover. Mm-hmm. And then we have a seed tree system in which we have about uh, 10% overstory cover on sites. And uh, those are the four overstory treatments. And then we split those into two understory treatments. Um, one of them was uh, to leave smaller trees, essentially leave the pulp wood mostly, uh, with tops all crissy crossy in the understory to deter deer herbivory. And uh, the second one was to uh, wait. We just, we just did this this last summer. We had to wait until the vegetation reflushed following harvesting. And that was to apply herbicide to the understory, anticipating that we would have a problem with both rubus and with uh, ironwood and beech saplings on many sites. Uh, herbicide efforts with the, a, uh, and then uh, go in and scarify sites. And we use dozers to do that on some sites and we uh, use a disc cruncher on others. Use disc crunchers in particular in the more open seed uh, uh, tree systems and shelters. Mm-hmm. And yeah. done via a mixture of contractors and DNR personnel. Yeah. So those those are the treatments we actually went out. So in 2016, 
Myself and Cruz went out and, and uh, did boundary, located, did boundary work on all the stands, um, painted all the stands, set up all the treatments. And then the DNR came in and they administered the sales. Uh, we got all the sites marked by January of uh, 2017. Then we got all 100, 141 stands harvested the winter of 2017. 17, 18, really fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, we uh, uh, came out the following year, the year after that, and got kind of what happened to measurements as a result of the harvest. And then we were out this last summer uh, doing browsing surveys across all the stands. Well, and how long do you envision this, the study going on, Mike? Yeah, we've got it set up so that it's, um, um, it, it's, uh, 10, 10 years following treatments. And based on, um, you know, for some things like little teeny hemlock and partial harvest situations, that's not long enough to get recruitment. But for most species and most treatments, the idea, the philosophy was that you would have, or certainly ought to have, free to grow stands, free to grow regeneration at that point in time. And what I mean by that is saplings taller than about breast height. Mm -hmm. They've gotten past deer and past, past most deer problems and most shrub competition problems in height. And then you can, you can say, we did it or we didn't. Now, certainly there'll be some longer term dynamics than that, but Geez, just getting the DNR to commit, and they—they—they they, they were. Um, it looks like they have, like they're going to be committing here soon financially to that full time, the rest of the time, the next six years, basically. So maybe we're a little too early in that timeline to tell. But are there any kind of preliminary observations that foresters might be able to take away from this? Uh yeah. Um, Couple, it is too early, by the way. That's 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 exactly <laughs> true. Uh, so, okay. anything I say will probably be wrong. But, we'll put that big caveat on there, yeah, yeah. But that's never stopped me from talking. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm just gonna go for it, yeah. It doesn't uh, stop us either, yeah. Some things that have been uh interesting about so, um, uh, we did find that because we do we run around and, and I should have mentioned this too. So, we're doing all these vegetation measurements and we have it set up such that we uh, we do sort of our initial responses, you know, and what got creamed and harvesting and uh, young seedling establishment in the forest. Then we do the browsing work. And then ultimately down the line, we're going to look at sapling recruitment, right? Five and 10 year surveys is what we're doing. Uh, at the same time, uh, before harvest and following harvest, we did deer pellet counts throughout our entire, all of our stands. And at the, uh, pre, we weren't able to do all our stands, but post we were. Uh, and um, then Gary Roloff's student, Melissa, has uh, cameras out at 60 of the stands, and she rotates them amongst stands. And so we're actually uh, able to look at deer use of, of the stands following harvest, you know, as a function of these different treatments and where you're, where you're at and region, what regional deer densities are like and all the rest of that stuff, which is pretty darn cool because one of the you know, ideas that we had is that we're going to be able to punch seedlings through the deer in some of these uh, harvests in which we left uh, less basal area because access is tougher for the deer. They're overwhelmed by all the vegetation, all that sort of stuff too. So if we actually get 
we are able to quantify gear better than pellet counts do because pellet counts are pretty rough and ready that we could be in pretty good shape to say things about that. So things that we found that are interesting uh, so far. So we did these browsing surveys this last summer and the browsing surveys um, are definitely going to get us the uh, tighter data than the pellet counts do. There's no doubt. I can already see that from, from doing some preliminary work on the data. I was surprised, maybe I shouldn't be, but I was, uh, if, if I were a more of a deer biologist, but I was surprised at how much browsing we saw in early summer on, on, the, uh, on the trees. I had thought that, and you know, I know that like with the evergreen conifers, they're, they're getting those like right as soon as the snow come off them if yep. small and things like that. But, but they're really uh, nailing the um, brand new growth on the hardwoods out there in early summer. Uh, the, um, we definitely saw a big jump up in deer use based on our pellet counts following harvests with deer use increasing with the decreasing residual basal area. So the highest deer use jump was in those seed tree systems and the least in the single tree selection. But again, we're hoping that the jungle of vegetation uh, overwhelms their increase in yeah. of those places. Yeah. Other things we've seen that are uh, oh, uh, deer eat everything except for beech. I was surprised at the degree that they actually browse uh, ironwood. Sure. Yeah. 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 We uh, see that because the ironwood punched. Oh, and the, but so the interesting thing about that though. So the other thing is is that deer tend to browse things more in the open than the understory. And in fact, the understory places where there would be ironwood, things, even sugar maple um, as small as saplings or seedlings, uh, un hmm. very, uh, uh, much less browsed in those environments. Whereas if they're out in the open, they're really, really getting nailed. And huh. uh, how, the story that seems to be developing is that some of these species then and same black cherry gets nailed out in the open and yet species like black cherry and ironwood lots of them re-sprouting from small saplings are able to win the the height race with the deer despite being browsed hard mm -hmm. that's how that's how they do yeah. it basically not by not by being avoided by deer I was going to say with this, it, it sounds like with this study, you're going to have not only, so we'll have wildlife interactions. I'm imagining maybe there'll be some other wildlife things that you'll see in this. And then testing assumptions with like these novel ways of looking at Northern hardwoods will, will help. I think in some ways we've talked about irregular shelter wood in some of our past episodes. I could see lessons being learned from maybe particular systems where Maybe we don't learn that system, but we can apply it to other things then that we kind of integrate into other places. Yeah, I, I think that's true. The um, One of the things, and, and this may be relevant, but, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but we have, I can say that the, some of the things that we, we, we have con confirmed, I think this again, is just me out there making observations. So they, they can't really take this home yet. Uh, but as, as Jason Hartman, my DNR partner says, he says, 
if you think you're seeing something, we're going to start trying it because we got to start <laughs> trying to do something. We're going to use it now. We yep. can't wait for you scientists <laughs> yeah, right. to come up with your final observations. And true fact, right? So, so, so he asked me to speculate a little bit on this and what are you seeing out there and stuff like that, much like, much like you guys are doing right now. The, uh, the shelter wood systems look promising in general, I, I would say. Uh, they seem to have that right mix of tangle in the understory, but not enough to uh, for rubus and things like that to to uh, outcompete with developing seedlings and saplings, at, but have high enough light such that they're able to punch up through the gear, even if they're getting browsed some. And I do think that is I see sugar maples out in open areas getting browsed hard, but continuing to sprout. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they they're in high resource environments, right? Um, I would say that the in many areas, not everywhere again, but many areas that we thought were challenged by single tree small group selection by deer, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing uh, abject failure in most of our single tree group selection systems that are in areas of moderate to high deer populations. Whereas mm-hmm. I believe we're seeing some success with some, uh, especially I would say shelterwood and maybe even sea tree systems in, in some of those areas. Are some of the sea tree systems, if you have the, have the seed sources, or if you have the, the, the tree sources uh, on site gonna, turn, gonna become a mixed tangle of early successional species and some late successional species? Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Where we do have aspen, we're getting aspen. Aspen, yeah. In the stands, yeah, yeah. But so <laughs> you could you could just match as and mix with a sugar maple understory, then ultimately you're going to turn back into a northern hardwood stand in the future. I would I would say it's not necessarily such a bad thing. I'm, I'm getting a little far afield here. We've seen lots of cool stuff so far, and um, and and uh, um, oh, but I'm probably not thinking about it all right now i'm kind of focusing on the browsing well i i appreciate i appreciate your speculation on on some of those things so early in the study you know you've just caused probably several thousand acres of shelter wood to go in across <laughs> the lake states so i hope it, I'm just, right. just, <laughs> but yeah and i could also i was just thinking when you were saying that that it also gets back to that seed source issue and at least with the shelter wood you have also some ability to manipulate your seed trees and what they are and 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 kind of control that a little bit so that's kind of cool absolutely and i I should say that's a great point greg that we tried uh, to the best you're only you only have what you have on a site when you're doing it mark one but we definitely tried to tip the balance towards underrepresented species when we marked our shelterwood stands. Uh, we made a concerted effort to do that. And, and I do think it, it, it helps. It pays off. And we tried to remove species we didn't want to promote. I mean, we removed every last ironwood we could, things like that, you know. One other thing I should say. So, so we are seeing on some sites what we thought we would with regard to um, some disappointment in terms of the diversity of of seedling mixes because of what I mentioned earlier, and that is the the lack of local seed sources for some species. Now you can get, everyone will say, well, yeah, the birch seed gets everywhere, right? Well, it does, but does it give really manageable densities of yellow birch if it's 
two miles away. No, you might have a couple in your stand, which is kind of nice, but you're not getting uh, sort of a high admixture of yellow birch in the stand unless you have some around that's local. It's on site. It's in the stand, uh, I, I would argue. So we have been seeing um, regeneration that is uh, from seed that is it's mostly sugar maples, young seedlings, but not very high mixtures of some of these other species. And that did inspire us to, to go out and, and seed several stands this spring to look at the kinds of things that we might be able to do to overcome uh, that other limitation on, uh, on diversity of desirable uh, generation on sites. And I imagine we'll be able, you'll be able to take lessons as you learn more from that, that'll be have application in lots of places like maybe adaptation for climate change or things like that. Yeah, too. absolutely. And in fact, uh, we uh, in the in my graduate student, Evan Farinosi, is out there as we speak. Uh, I'm helping him kind of in a royal sense, but <laughs> he, he's out there. He's out there camping in the woods right now, um, putting these uh, seed plots in. He is he's actually seeing that as uh, he's being opportunistic about that. He's he's both looking to increase the diversity of northern hardwood species uh, on the sites that he's seeding, but he is also seeding species found on drier sites, less music sites in Michigan, uh, because of climate change forecast being for deeper droughts. Well, some of that local migration might be important on sites like uh, white pine species like that. Uh, red oak, uh, higher higher proportions of those species on northern hardwood sites in the future. But he's also moving up some species that are distributed further south and seeing those on the sites as well, including some more southerly distributed uh, hickory species. Lastly, and this is just to, to advertise uh, my some of my other students' work, uh, Catherine Henry. Uh, Catherine has actually gotten into 60 of these uh, stands, 60 of the 140, and she's uh, She's, she's uh, done all this uh, tree cookie work uh, to look at uh, stand ages mm. uh, across mm. sites. Um, she has like uh, 2,000 cookies or something like that. She's legally blind now after looking at all of those. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but what she's, uh, uh, she's, she's done with most of the sapling class individuals. She sampled them down to two inches in diameter. Average ages for stems that are two inches in diameter. These all sugar maple stems, by the way, uh, mm -hmm. 50 to 75 years. Wow. Not mm -hmm. good. Yeah. 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 Been sitting there a long right. time. Yeah. And, and Mike, I know um, we have a number of your students and collaborators um, and yourself presenting coming up at the Northern Hardwood Conference uh, here in June. So that's just a little plug to actually get more information on the big Northern Hardwood study. And uh, I know today here, both Brad and I, we could talk with you about this for a long time. Uh, and so we'll probably have to run into our time limits here or Haley will give us the big hook uh, off the stage. But yeah, so that was a plug for just kind of people can tune in and hear some more about this. And we really look forward to, I look forward to uh, this study going further and, you know, more information and more conclusions coming as we, we see these stands develop. 
Well, I'm so happy to be able to share this with you. I, I did want to say just, just briefly that uh, we're going to roll out lots of new stuff at the Northern Hardwoods Conference, and that includes all the age distribution work that Kath, Catherine's been doing in the stands. We've developed some stocking guidelines for various values in Northern Hardwoods and look at the factors that affect stocking in uh, Northern Hardwoods pre-harvest, using our pre-harvest data. Uh, Melissa's going to present a lot of her deer camera work that she's been doing across years. Then Evan's going to present lots of his uh, uh, browsing results that we worked on uh, all last summer. Should be really interesting, and we really look forward to talking with you all about it. Well, hey, th thanks, Mike, for joining us. Been really interesting today. Yeah, this has been fantastic, Mike. Thank you, Brad and Greg, and uh, have, a, have a great day. And uh, keep practicing that hack. Keep the, the dream alive, buddy. I'm back on it. You've inspired <laughs> me, Greg. Thank you. Okay. See you later. See that music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, your questions, your tips, whatever you send in, and we share them with our listeners. So Greg, as you know, in last month's episode, we, we stirred the juices. We got people talking about things. We had a great discussion with Doug Jacobs from Purdue University about, about artificial regeneration of hardwoods. And was with all of our discussions, you know, we, we kind of, I think we start people thinking about things. And so one of our listeners wondered why Doug recommended using only local seed sources when we know climatic conditions are changing so rapidly. Well, I think that's a really great discussion uh, coming up. I know from Doug's perspective, I think during that show, he talked about, we have a lot to learn about assisted migration and more research is needed. And so I think that's, you know, where he was coming from. And certainly I think there's a lot of people, really knowledgeable researchers, geneticists that look at this conservatively and, and you know, would agree with those recommendations. Uh, but we also know that we need a lot more, as Doug said, research in looking at how we can help tree species adapt to that changing climate that we know is coming. And so there's definitely a lot more work to go into that and a lot more discussion. And so maybe, Brad, on a future episode, uh, we will do an episode on assisted migration and kind of really delve into maybe some of the details of that whole issue. We've both had questions about that, and we've both been kind of faced with that question. Should we be moving things right now, or should we be waiting, or should we, how do you approach that? So I, I agree. I think it would be a great topic. So, yeah, let's, let's do it. Brad, every time we hit this closing segment, we get heckled by that booth. I say we preemptively heckle. Ready? Let's do it. Boo! These guys do know that the booth controls the mute button, right? Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you like Silvacast, please remember to follow or subscribe. You can find Silvacast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are found. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing wfc at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or a comment if you like. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Take care, everyone, 
And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Freighter, our editor-in-chief, Noah LeMade, our IT master, theme music by Paul Freighter, and of course, UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. 